Well, hi everybody and welcome. Um, we have 900 people registered for today's session, so it is fantastic and thanks to all of you for joining us. So today we have an amazing panel of speakers from the United States, New Zealand and Australia who will talk about the latest actions in tactical urbanism and how they influence the rethink of public space in the um, time of COVID-19. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Austroads and I will be moderating today's session. So you can see my contact details um, up on this slide. So if you have any questions or need any assistance after the webinar, um, just email me or give me a call. So before we start, um, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to elders past present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. Um, a little bit about Austroads. We are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. Here's our structure. Um, we use program management approach to deliver our work. There are four programs and each is focused on an operational area of the road system. So the session that we're having today was inspired by the work delivered by the Transport Network Operations Program, which is managed by Richard Del Place. So Richard is here with us today and I will hand over to him to say a few words about the webinar and explain where it fits in the bigger program picture. Hi Richard and welcome. Hi, Katerina. Uh, thanks for uh, introducing this, this webinar today. Just a few words to introduce a little bit the, the, the webinar. The, um, as, as our audience may know, the Transport Network Operations Program is, is focused on improving the mobility of people and goods on the road transport network. The program has its historical roots in traffic management and in traffic engineering and how road transport agencies can optimize traffic. But even though these disciplines are still very much covered by our research and, and guidance, the program evolves and increasingly recognizes the road network's role in supporting and enabling social, economic and environmental outcomes of places. So I'm very excited today, as probably is our audience, to learn from experience in tactical urbanism and therefore how to reflect on, on how we put more place consideration in our transport operations and planning going forward. So on this, back to you, Ekaterina, uh, to introduce our speakers today. Thank you. Uh, but before I do that, uh, just a bit of housekeeping for today's session. Um, so it will run for one hour and a half. Our presenters will speak for 60 minutes and then we will have a Q&A at the end. Um, we record all our sessions and you will receive an email from, once, uh, from us once the recording is available on the website. You can also search for Austroads in your podcast app. Um, the slides for today's presentation can be downloaded from the handout section um, of your um, sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. There is also a question section there, so please use it to send us your questions. Um, just simply type them in the box and hit send at any stage of the webinar. You can also use that same box to let me know if you have any technical problems. Um, but a quick tip, if you uh, lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue most likely uh, is with your connection. So 
just leaving the webinar, closing the browser and rejoining the session using your registration link usually uh, fixes that problem. Um, so I'm delighted to introduce our speakers for today's session, Mike Leiden, Claire Pasco, and Sarah Stace. We will first hear from Mike, uh, Principal at Street Plans. Mike is the creator of the, the Open Streets project and co-author of many globally acclaimed publications on tactical urbanism. Mike was also named by Planetism as one of the 100 most influential urbanists of all time. Most recently, Mike co-authored the Streets for Pandemic Response and Recovery Guide, which compiles emerging practices from around the world and includes implementation resources to assist cities in managing the challenges of COVID-19. So Mike will provide an overview of how leading cities, large and small, have responded to the challenges of the pandemic, and he will offer a preliminary roadmap for how we might reconsider urban transport in the coming years. Our second guest is Claire Pasco, who is the lead advisor, urban mobility at Waka Katahi, New Zealand Transport Agency. In her role, she provides technical expertise and leadership to support safer and more livable towns and cities. Alongside her colleague, Catherine King, Claire is currently leading the innovating system, innovating streets program to build capability in tactical urbanism nationally. Then we will hear from Sarah Stace. Sarah has worked for more than 20 years in federal, state and local government in Australia, as well as the private sector. She is currently Associate Director, Walking and Cycling Strategy at Transport for New South Wales. Her publications include the Australian National Urban Policy, National Urban Design Protocol, National Active Transport Policy and a range of local government transport policies. So Claire and Sarah will share their perspectives and experiences from the program um, launched during the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, a big welcome to all of you and I will hand over to Mike. Over to you, Mike. Okay, thank you, Ekaterina. Hope you all are well uh, this afternoon, evening time here in uh, New York City. Uh, let me just pull into full screen mode. Okay. Uh, it is lovely to be with you all today. Um, I'll be sharing kind of an introduction to some of the background to tactical urbanism and a couple of ways we've applied this uh, prior to the pandemic. And then we'll you know, jump right into the responses thus far globally and then where this might be going in, in coming months and years. Um, so I've spent a lot of time actually working and, and collaborating with folks across both Australia and New Zealand. So it's a pleasure to be with, with all of you today. In fact, I hope there are some on the, on the call or the, the webinar today who uh, I've worked with um, from introducing some of the tactical urbanism concepts to uh, Auckland Transport back in 2015 to that same year working with co-design studio in, in Melbourne and, and uh, Sydney to what former uh, House Representative John Lewis, who unfortunately just, just passed away um, this weekend, the civil rights hero here, here in the United States called making good trouble. Um, tactical urbanism is not necessarily new in this context, but it's really amazing to see how uh, this has evolved in the last, um, not just several years, I would say just in the last several months, how your two countries have taken up the challenge of thinking about responding to the pandemic and thinking more thoroughly about public space and how to deliver better streets for everybody moving forward. So I'm very pleased to be here. 
Um, Street Plans is an urban planning consultancy. We're based in Miami and New York City. Uh, we've been around for about 11 years now, and we focus on all sorts of different types of projects. But if I can boil it down, we're really about streets, mobility, and public spaces. And so tactical urbanism is our core methodology for delivering you know, projects for change with outcomes that support placemaking, you know, places that are more beautiful and equitable and supportive of, of daily life. Um, so our, our critique and our approach to this work has long been that conventional project delivery, urban planning, transport engineering has for too long focused on very large scale projects that are very slow, very, very expensive, um, oftentimes lack transparency um, for public in process and public engagement, which ultimately breeds mistrust in governance and the projects themselves, and then produces a static and inflexible approach to design that over the many years is very hard to change and very expensive to change, particularly when things don't work out the way that we thought. And so here's an image of downtown Miami, which is where I used to live when we started street plans. Um, where the highway was you know, bulldozed through many vibrant neighborhoods back in the 1950s. And, you know, I would love to report that those highways have been ameliorated, that those neighborhoods have been reinvested in, that air pollution has gone down in those places. But unfortunately, we still see not only just news stories, but actual projects come forward that are leveraging hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to double down on a system that has proven to be very um, unsustainable, both financially, but of course, ecologically and, and socially and from an equity perspective. So here you just see a, a highlight from Miami where they are you know, gonna be reinvesting in this highway to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, you know, I've spent some time in Australia, New Zealand, as I mentioned, I follow the news there from time to time. I know that this is not a story that's unfamiliar to you all in your context. And I also know that we have a lot of transport and road engineers and planners on this call. So the, the key message here is that, um, you know, there is politics around, you know, these kinds of projects. There's lots of money on the line for obvious reasons, but when we actually think about making a difference and changing cities, you know, it's really not about politics, it's about spatial allocation. And how do we move people? How do we move people across a region so they can access opportunity economically, see friends and family, and enjoy their life, right? And if you look in the bottom left there, this is a great graphic from the organization called Tumi in uh, Europe that, you know, there's, there's many graphics that show this, this kind of data, but we spend the most money on the least uh, efficient ways to move people across the metropolitan region, right? So this is a graph that just shows the passengers per hour um, in a typical 3.5 meter wide lane in a given city. We find that the way we do things and the way we spend our money is obviously the least efficient way to do that. Uh, walking, cycling, bus, light rail, BRT, heavy rail, suburban, you know, commuter rail, all moves way more people on that same, you know, allocation of space. Um, so what we're trying to do is make sure that cities and citizens and advocates and businesses have tools so they can think differently about how we invest in our in our cities and how we move around. And this great quote from Jean Jacobs really highlights that. She says that city planning lacks tactics for building cities that work like cities. And I think to me that's really an important point that, you know, urbane places, you know, walkable places, places where people can mix and, you know, in 
engagement opportunity are places where we all have a finer grain of engagement and involvement in our daily life and not just behind the wheel of an automobile. And so for us, tactical urbanism has always been a really key tool to rethink the way we allocate space and how people have access to that space and move around their communities. And so it, it, it recognizes that making big changes is difficult, that we have policies, histories, politics, entrenched interests that span generations. Uh, so to move the needle on rethinking how we you know, consider our cities and how we live in them, we've got to start with someplace small, someplace low risk, someplace where we can try things out and then use those opportunities to catalyze the things that work well, to double down on long-term investment, um, to take those hundreds of millions and billions of dollars and put them in the places that make the most impact. And in our experience, tactical urbanism is a really good tool to do that. Um, it's, for one, very inexpensive. Um, it's non-committal in the sense that we use very temporary materials, at least to start. We're often using existing plans that have either been sitting on shelves languishing or you know might have had political support at one point but no one's really pushing hard on them and we try to take those plans off the shelf and show people what they look like in real time in real life what policies and planning actually means when we deliver those projects and then ultimately what we're trying to do is make more people-friendly neighborhoods whether you're in a rural context a suburban place or a more urban uh, environment we're trying to make places work for everybody. So our methods are uh, drawing upon this kind of iterative approach where you start with a very lightweight intervention, a change to the built environment, to a street, to a sidewalk, to a block, to a vacant lot, and you do something for one day, for one weekend, for one week, for a month maybe, and you learn from that experience. You build alliances, you have the project able to you know, draw people out and give you opinions on the street itself and in real neighborhoods, and not just on the screen. Um, and you take those learnings and the data collected and the feedback that you receive, and you can bring that into the planning process for the next iteration. So it's it's not about the big $800 million project from the outset. It might be about the $8,000 or the $80,000 project to start and seeing where that leads over time to what people really want you to invest in and making sure this is a tool for um, vetting design, but also for, for vetting engagement. And so on the engagement piece, you know, we're really looking for um, an approach to cities that considers the whole ecosystem. You know, cities don't operate just from the council level downward, and they don't operate from the neighborhood or grassroots NGO level upward. There's a whole ecosystem of actors, people who support ideas, who don't support ideas, who need to be engaged together to consider change. And so this is a method that draws those different forces and ideas and approaches together to, to really consider what the opportunities are, like I said, in, in real life and urban space. So the applications of tactical urbanism are um, fundamentally about public engagement, um, but particularly about testing uh, design ideas, design assumptions, and um, achieving a way to uh, receive in, um, input from people both qualitatively, but also quantitatively, to understand really in the data what works and what doesn't work well. And that's really what pilot and interim design projects are all about. And then ultimately what we're striving for are policies and programs that replicate this approach, that embed tactical urbanism as a way of delivering projects when it's appropriate. And I'll be the first to say it's not appropriate everywhere for every project, 
but there's a lot of instances where it makes a lot of sense to start with a demonstration or pilot project before you move on um, to committing to something larger in scale. So I'll bring us back to this Miami image, right? Here's that freeway plowing through the same mindset of we have to think about the 20 year project, the 50 year projection, how much growth will we have and make sure we're allocating you know, our money and our resources towards that, that idea. And what's missing is these whole three iterations that precede that, right? Ways to test very conservatively what might be an assumption but doesn't bear itself out in real time. What are people's you know, priorities? What do they prefer? You know, how does this impact business at a local level on a high street? You know, does this make it easier for kids to get to and from school and to see their friends? These are the different steps that we put in place that have different materials, different timelines, different engagement mechanisms, um, from the demonstration of the pilot to what we call interim design, which really fills that gap between a successful pilot project and, and lasting change. I won't dwell on this for too long, but you can come back to this presentation later to really dig into some of the details here, but this is really the DNA of tactical urbanism. So the benefits are that people work together in new ways. Uh, when we experience change together, it's really powerful. Um, rather than just debating or talking about an image on a screen or on a PDF, um, we uncover what works and more importantly, what does not work. And so we're really focused, to, uh, focused on getting rid of the things in our assumptions and our plans that don't have that support at a local level and then investing and doubling down on the things that do. And then what we found is that this process is able to build political will and deliver public benefits faster in the end than our conventional planning processes. And so I'll give you two quick examples before I dive into the post-COVID or the, I guess, existing COVID world that we're all um, inhabiting in some sense right now. And so this is a project that actually goes back to um, 2013 in Australia, in Penrith, Australia. Some of you may know this, this town. This is um, about an hour away from the core of, of Sydney. And the idea here was that the community had just adopted a brand new uh, master plan for its high street. And they produced that plan with a great uh, firm called Place Partners. And Kylie Legg of Place Partners invited me over to, um, to Penrith uh, for a series of, of engagements and workshops. And the idea here was to work with community groups business owners, council, and work with a budget resource that council had already allocated to a project that would be built after the workshop. And they allocated 40,000 Australian dollars to the, to the work. And so the, the money was real, the opportunity was real, there was a site that was identified in the, in the high street master plan that needed to be transformed, and it was a place that was kind of lacking public life, hot in the summer, cold in the winter, and really disconnected from the rest of the energy of the community. And so each team in the workshop was given a, a budget to work on one of three areas in the site. And what resulted from that plan was this is the existing condition and within one month it went from this to that. And this was the very first pilot to test out these assumptions that not all traffic had to be on this final block on High Street, that we could activate and program this space to be more lively and supportive of local business, and that um, we could test out design assumptions for a long-term project, which was always envisioned in the plan. But of course, not everybody supported it, right? These projects are controversial. There were some people who liked it and some people who did not. And I think what was most important about the process from Penrith is that it was transparent. It was always communicated this was gonna be a, a project that was temporary, it would last a year, we would evaluate it, things that would have to change would change, 
And it was a really, a really important way to build trust in the longer term investment. And so we always say that performance dictates the design and the programming. And so what they found was that there were tweaks that had to be made in the initial design that came out of the community workshop. Uh, there was some parking that had to be added back in. There was some more greenery that had to be added. There was some maintenance and programming changes. But that was the whole point, to learn those things through that process. And by 2015, so two years later, you know, the mayor of uh, Penrith, as, as well as many others, though there was strong debate, decided that this was a very clear process and there was enough support to move this into final design. So the project was in place as a placeholder while that design took place. And that's really an incredible point, is that this is a, adding benefit and uh, amenity while the long-term design is being uh, developed. And so here you see that street from the beginning and then what it looks like today when it's fully activated. So a really big change um, in the environment that is much more supportive of local business and activation in the community. And so, you know, their goals were, were myriad, um, but you could say that for their goals, this project really ticked the box on, on all of them, right? Creating an accessible public space that be programmed at night that supported businesses, that was welcoming to people of all ages. Um, it really is an impressive project that has, has you know, received a lot of attention over the last several years because of that process, which you know goes to the credit of both place, partner, place partners at the outset and of course council for envisioning this to be possible from the very beginning. And then secondarily, I'll share a quick project from Asheville, North Carolina, which was really a project that was intended to be a placeholder. Uh, this is a street that's going to be redeveloped entirely um, in 2022. And it was an opportunity working with the city and with a local nonprofit organization to engage the community in what that would look like physically. And so we ran a lot of community engagement and co-design processes to understand what people wanted and then redesign the street accordingly as a way to gauge feedback and input and to you know, understand the performance of the street in the short term. And primarily this was about pedestrian safety and comfort and then moving people, uh, cycling, walking, scooting and skating while supporting local businesses. We were able to attract 120 plus volunteers over the course of one weekend to install the project, um, which really did require that many people to do the work. It was uh, six city blocks uh, with a very large scale mural at the heart of it, which is intended to be a flexible, flexible space that can be closed to vehicular traffic for events, but otherwise would support parking and driving uh, per usual, but not feel like a typical street, but feel like a public space that you had to drive through. We measured the results of this project over the course of one year and found that speeds were reduced dramatically um, uh, from the before condition to the after. Particularly the incidence of speeding, or meaning the number of cars that were speeding went from two out of three to one out of five. And the highest speed that was clocked was 89 miles per hour, or uh, afterwards was 41 miles per hour, so you know, more than half the speed was reduced. I and mean, this is a city street. There's no reason why people should be going that fast. Um, and ultimately, we were able to measure the economic impact of this project. We worked with an organization called State of Place, and we met, you know, we were able to use 200 plus different metrics to analyze what worked and what didn't in this project. And I think primarily what we saw was the initial outlay of investment in the materials and the consulting work would lead to a return on the investment of $23.40 over the course of five years. So these projects really do, even in interim temporary state, have a long-term impact. And like I always like to say, isn't this all the data that we need? So the city has learned a ton moving forward in terms of ongoing maintenance practices. They've refreshed the street over the years 
and they've kept this as a project to be managed and in place while they have then let out this RFP, uh, this tender for the long-term reconstruction of the street that utilizes all the lessons learned through that process and through that project. So we feel much more confident, I think the city feels more confident, and the community feels more confident that what comes next will take those lessons and internalize them in the large-scale investment that's coming in the coming years. So I'm gonna wrap this up relatively quickly. I've got uh, just a few more minutes, um, but I want to talk about resilience. I think that's a big picture item, you know, the big concern that's happening in our cities, particularly, you know, right now during COVID, but generally with global warming bearing down, we're seeing lots of impacts across the globe. Of course, Australia and New Zealand are no stranger to this, you know, from fire, you know, wildfires uh, spreading across the whole country to um, earthquakes and the resulting impacts of that and how people have chosen to rebuild and rethink at this time has been really, really critical. I and mean, there's a lot of lessons to be learned um, from across Australia, of course, in Christchurch in New Zealand, and um, many other communities across your two countries. Here in the US, we've been exposed to the worst of COVID for now months. And it spread from New York City, which is where I live. This is an image I took back in, I believe it was in early April, um, to around the whole country. And what's been interesting is not just in the United States, but across the globe, we've seen this really strong response to how this plays out with um, streets and public spaces and how we manage the streets both during the pandemic, but also as a response to recover our communities and help them thrive economically moving forward. And we've seen a lot of policies and plans that are sitting on the shelf or just moving very slowly be accelerated at this time from open streets, uh, car-free streets, to uh, allowing dining in the middle of, of streets and roads, to opening up curb space for queuing, for you know physical distancing, for accessing essential businesses, shared streets, bike lanes, and of course thinking about even signals. How do we think about uh, not only virus transmission, but how do we prevent clustering and um, frustration by pedestrians um, at our intersections? And in summary, we've seen more than 250, probably 300 or 400 cities at this point. I, I really stopped collecting the data about a month ago. Over 30 countries using those six core tactics and many cities applying multiple tactics to respond to the pandemic and help recover. Um, at scale, we've seen Paris, you know, cities as large as Paris take on um, more than 600 kilometers of, of, of new bikeways to New York City, where I live, doing lots of open streets and restaurant dining, et cetera, um, to you know, communities around the globe taking this on. But what we've been trying to do with NACDO and the Global Design Cities Initiative is to develop policies for how communities can respond to this, both during the pandemic and then in its recovery. And so this is a, a document I'd like to point you to. It's an emerging practice. It's something that we keep uh, iterating on from week to week and month to month as, as conditions change. It provides guidance for more than 15 different types of interventions that relate to mobility, public, um, public space, and of course, access to different services. So you'll find these cut sheets with guidance for all those different 15 types of interventions. And so I'm going to conclude with just seven quick lessons uh, that we've learned so far. One, leadership and responsiveness and creativity, because it's difficult to do this work. It looks low cost and it looks cheap and quick, but it is difficult. This has really, really mattered coming from, you know, state governments, federal governments, down to local mayors and councils. Um, what we've learned is most cities lack the protocol for policies that deliver rapid response initiatives or tactical urbanism. Most cities have no idea how to operationalize this for 
you know, a pandemic, for wildfire, for resilience, let alone for normal times. Uh, we found that ongoing evaluation, iteration is really key to the performance and identifying what works and what doesn't for the long-term investment in the recovery. Uh, I showed you a lot of big cities there on that top 10 chart, but there's been hundreds of cities that are 50,000, 20,000, 5,000 people that cities with less bureaucracy are actually, it's a lot easier and faster to act in those places. So if you're in a small community, you should not fret. And then cities are expanding their initiatives. They're looking at all the different types of things they can do moving forward, both cycling, public space, dining, supporting local businesses. We're all trying to get to a new normal where we can get back to a place where people are supported daily in their, in their normal lives. And I'd say that there's been a huge missed opportunity around the globe, which is really focusing on equity from the outset. A lot of US cities have learned that lesson now, um, but it was a hard lesson for the first few months of the pandemic that we were not being responsive enough to where the need was greatest. And then finally, I started with this image. I'm gonna conclude with this image here from New York City um, that really when it comes down to it, the biggest barrier is us. You know, uh, we've seen how fast cities can act. We've seen the impact that can have. You can see how uh, temporary and iterative these things can be. We've made all of these barriers, which are entirely man-made, and we can break those barriers down if we just commit to acting and acting together and faithfully and trust with our, our communities. So what's next? Better use of place and space? I hope so. Uh, we will see in the coming weeks and months and years if that is absolutely the case. If you need more information, you can go to tacticalurbanismguide.com or look us up on the internet. And there's lots of resources that are free that you can access around this movement. Um, and with that, I will turn it over. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mike. Um, and I'm gonna hand over to Claire for her presentation. Claire, over to you. Fantastic. Thank you, Ekaterina. I'll just set this up. Hopefully everybody can see and hear me. Yep. Fabulous. All right, well, kia ora koutou, everyone. Um, it's really fantastic to be here today talking about a topic that's very close to my heart. Um, and it's very humbling to be following Mike, um, who's obviously got a, a huge amount of knowledge in this space, one of our kind of founding fathers of tactical urbanism. Um, it doesn't seem to matter how many times I hear him present, I'm always kind of writing down some extra bullet point for later. So um, today I'm going to be talking about our learning journey we're on at the moment down here in New Zealand with tactical urbanism. Um, a lot of it will be kind of covering very similar themes to, to what Mike has mentioned, but I guess the kind of way in which our thought processes have gone to get there as well. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about how it relates to some of the wider urban mobility and system change work that we're doing. Uh, later on, I'll introduce the Innovating Streets for People program, which is our national tactical urbanism initiative. And I'll tell you a little bit about where we're at now with that and where we're heading. So in New Zealand, we have a really strong national mandate at the moment uh, for transport systems that deliver better outcomes for people and communities. So this diagram on the left here is from our Ministry of Transport's Outcomes Framework, and it really sets the scene um, for what we're investing in through transport. You can see um, from you know, what we're looking for in terms of the outcomes that in an urban environment, that's really leading to a transformation from our towns and cities um, being places where people are really dependent on vehicles um, to places where people have genuine transport options, um, places where we're using our really limited 
road and street space much more efficiently um, and creating environments that are safe, healthy and vibrant. We also have a really strong mandate at the moment to look seriously at our carbon emissions. We have the zero carbon bill um, passed through Parliament and transport is obviously a significant contributor. So I won't be saying anything here that is unfamiliar to any of you and I'd probably put $1,000 on the fact that each one of you has a some kind of strategy reflecting these sorts of themes as well, um, looking to make a similar shift in your urban environment. So we've got um, plenty, I'm sure you do too, of beautiful renders like this, um, traveling around our um, kind of transport plans across the country. So we've got that really strong strategic intent and we're starting to have more um, frameworks and tools uh, that help us actually operationalize those strategies by better accounting for the different functions that our roads and streets play um, and highlighting some of the trade-offs that we make in those urban environments. So um, movement in place frameworks, they're, they're not perfect. Everybody has an opinion um, on them. And uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with the idea of a movement in place framework, I'd um, really recommend the upcoming Austroads research on um, place, which kind of delves in a little bit more deeply to them. But I'm sure lots of you are familiar with them. While they aren't perfect, I think they really are shifting the dial in terms of supporting more complete street conversations in towns and cities. So they're encouraging um, us, the transport sector, to invite in a wider range of disciplines and expertise and are helping build awareness that sometimes um, streets are, it's actually more important for our local economies that people stop and spend time rather than save time by driving through them faster or sort of quote unquote more efficiently. So New Zealand is developing a national movement in place framework as well. It's evolving from our one network road classification. Um, and I know that lots of the states in Australia have got them as well. So um, here I just wanted to demonstrate, uh, if you're not that familiar with movement in place, an example from Wellington, my hometown. So on the left here, you'll see our uh, classification of the state highway system broken down with the one network road classification. So that's our um, the kind of precursor to the one network framework. And you'll see that the little wee bit of pink at the bottom of the North Island, um, that's Wellington. That's our, a high volume, it's classified as a high volume road, which means it's the, the most important for prioritising vehicle flows. But on the right hand side here, this is a picture of an intersection along that way and it's actually right in the heart of Wellington City. This is one of our most famous and award winning restaurants which plenty of people are trying to get to um, and in the morning there are just as many people trying to cross this road um, to get into the pedestrian mall down the way as there are people in vehicles trying to get through the intersection. So what a movement in place framework does is it takes all of that in con into consideration and helps us plan accordingly. Um, it helps us justify why we might increase the level of service for pedestrians here at some cost to the efficiency um, to vehicles because we can see the trade-offs that we're making more clearly. And it also would help us see that we actually need to invite in some urban design specialists here who are skilled at designing places for people. So all, we've got a really strong strategic intent. We're starting to have more frameworks um, that help us incorporate kind of better place outcomes into our transport planning work. Um, 
that means that we're starting to see a lot of these kind of great plans for our towns and cities popping up. Um, this is another one from Wellington. Anybody who knows, uh, who's worked on these sorts of projects know that these sort of transformational upgrades take a really long time. This picture here includes uh, mass rapid transit and the, the, um, the, the little green feature. So, you know, you can add five to 10 years in for that as well. So whilst it's fantastic that we can see we're heading in this really great direction, often what happens after these pictures are developed is that we go back into a kind of public planning black hole um, and people lose sight of them for years and years. Um, the, the problem with that is that we've actually got some quite urgent challenges that we're facing at the moment, um, whether it's sort of uh, climate change related, if it's deaths and serious injuries, if it's physical and inactivity, there's really a need to move a lot quicker than we can when we're only looking at permanent upgrades. So this is my scientifically developed graph, um, really just to highlight that at the moment, this is sort of the pace of change we're tracking along. Um, but if we want to reach some of these outcomes um, and really tackle some of these challenges, we have to ramp it up quite significantly. The issue is uh, that Whilst the, the beautiful pictures really inspire people and get them excited for this vision of a city, when we come to make changes on the ground, um, typically involving reallocating road space, um, we can quite quickly lose that enthusiasm from the public and meet some quite serious resistance. So, um, you know, when we're reallocating road space or, or lowering speeds, we are starting to um, mess with the power dynamics, I guess, on a street. And we're starting to move into more of a socio-technical environment than a than a technical environment. So often transport comes from a, a quite a, um, a technical background, but we are not always experts at understanding um, change and how change works. So for the last few years, I've been um, sort of geekily diving into the literature about change and trying to understand a little bit more about it. And there are lots of specialists in this area. I don't claim to be one. But there are several different models that address change. Um, this graph here, or this visual on the right here, is uh, just from a, a quite standard change management um, theories. But all of them, something that all of them have in common is this idea of the use of an experiment um, or a niche idea or an innovation in terms of um, supporting uh, through to, to bigger transformations. So um, all of that is really beautifully summed up in relation to transport in this research project um, by Helen Rowe, which I really recommend going and having a read. And it starts to introduce, I guess, the theory or the basis for why tactical urbanism is a very powerful tool. Um, it, it talks about the, the non-threatening approach to change that, it, uh, that pilots and demonstrations provide. Uh, and it also talks about how that a more participatory approach uh, where people can quite quickly see the results of some of their feedback really helps to kind of build trust and create a much deeper level of engagement in a project. It even uh, drops into some kind of neuroscience about this idea of fast brain, slow brain. So that kind of quick intuitive reaction we have like, oh, you're taking my parking away. No, no, no. So actually when you get to experience something in real time, you can have a much more sophisticated um, reflection on it and, and 
people find that this approach gets them much, much richer um, engagement. So you can kind of see the theory of where this comes from. In New Zealand, we have been experimenting it with it a little bit over the last kind of five years. Auckland, these are some examples from Auckland, Wellington and Tauranga. And at a national level, we were really strongly supporting councils, you know, use pilots, use trials. But what we found is they were commonly saying to us, well, actually, it's really, really hard, even though they're sort of, they seem low cost, they seem quick, you know, and that often, you know, people associate that with easy. We were finding actually, these don't seem to be very easy at all. So we started in a more formal way, trying to understand what some of these barriers were. And you can see here um, a short list of some of the ones that started to be uncovered through surveys with people who'd, who had tried this. Um, and it turned out that there were a huge number, as Mike alluded to, of kind of system barriers to working in this way. So whether it was that it, it wasn't really clear through our business a case approach how these things would be funded or supported, um, or where, where they were actually rubbing up against some legal or regulatory barriers. Um, things like, for instance, some of the beautiful art that you saw in Mike's slides is actually prohibited through our traffic control device rule here. Um, so there were a number of reasons that suddenly it became obvious why 34 out of 45 people surveyed said it was not easy at all to deliver these projects. And that really was the basis of formally kicking off Innovating Streets. This is one of my favourite quotes, which I think perfectly sums up some of the frustration that people feel um, when they try and de deliver some of these projects. So Innovating Streets was born, I guess, to address some of these system barriers and to help have a kind of coherent approach to lifting capability and getting better at using it. So um, these are the five work streams that we set up um, and I'm just gonna dive into some of them one by one. At the system level, we are working, for instance, I couldn't find a beautiful picture of our um, proposed rule change for the traffic control device rule, but basically we're working on a potential change to that rule, which would allow in low speed environments, um, roadway art in some circumstances to be used. So that was an example of kind of addressing a system barrier at a national level. Similarly, um, one of the key things that kept coming up is that traffic management can be really complicated and expensive and in some really low risk local streets where people just wanted to have a play event, it was prohibitive. So we're also working on some more fit for purpose processes and guidance um, for traffic management in these really low risk environments. It'll be coming out soon. And we're working to help kind of change the narrative overall with some research into uh, how we can best talk about some of these changes so that we are um, instead of kicking that fast brain off, we're helping to move people into that more slow brain deliberative pr um, process where their feedback um, will hopefully be more supportive of some of what we're trying to do. So some of those things we've got in the resource list that you can check out afterwards. But these are some of the case studies um, that we followed along for a year. Um, to see if we could really glean what people were learning on the ground from using tactical urbanism. 
This is an intersection um, intervention in Auckland where they were able to get some really great results, results both in terms of speed reduction but also shifting pedestrians to cross um, in a much safer location. This is an example of one of those play streets that I talked about. So this is where we got to understand a bit more about road closure processes and um, potential variations to traffic management processes. This is another road closure from Lower Hutt. This one, however, was for a couple of months where we were trialling out um, kind of using this piece of street um, to kind of revitalise the business area rather than just a, a throughput, which wasn't really needed in terms of network operations. This was some uh, network reconfiguration in Dunedin, right in the town centre, um, trialling, reallocating space uh, back to people there. And then we did have a few COVID response projects. I haven't included too much of that here because we, New Zealand, we were in the very privileged position to be transitioning back to level one quite quickly. So we had quite a few projects planned, but before we knew it, we were back to um, not having social distancing requirements and really it felt like the, the mandate for those projects had, had disappeared. But this is one from Auckland. Um, there was also uh, a large, quite controversial one on Queen Street as well that went in very quickly as an emergency measure and is now going to transition to a uh, more place-making type trial. Uh, this is a very small little example from a rural town in the Waikato in Morrinsville where they were able to, within two weeks, put in um, some space for social distancing at very low cost. And this is, I guess, the jewel in the crown for us in New Zealand. High Street in Auckland, right in the centre of Auckland, um, has really transformed into a much more pedestrian friendly environment. It used to be jammed with vehicles um, parked on, I think, both sides and driving through as well. If you're interested in that one, there's a nice video online about the transformation. So through all of those case studies, we started to learn quite a lot. Um, about what was important for tactical urbanism in New Zealand. These are, I guess, five of the key things that we have found. The first is that while they seem, again, kind of might seem quick and easy and, and take a lot less time, they actually take a lot of time and uh, a lot of time doing different sorts of things. So a lot of hustling and getting out on the street and having face-to-face -face time um, engaging with people and, you know, building that combined mandate to work in that local area. So having skills that are more um, steered towards that need is really important for the projects and having the more technical roles playing a support or enabling role, um, potentially not a, a leading role. The sentiment testing is really important um, to provide evidence of why you're doing what you're doing. So often we rely on kind of feedback that comes either into the council or um, on Facebook, but is not always representative of the broad range of people, most of which are silent. So actually having some robust ways to show um, that people do want this and proactively going out and surveying sentiment um, both before and after is a really important part of protecting a project's social licence um, when the inevitable kind of noise comes as it, as it enters. We've also learned a bit about strategic communications and how to tell the story of these projects um, and that if they are being 
um, if they are pilots and they're being sold as pilots, they need to act like pilots, which means that when you get feedback once they go in, there has to be a mechanism to adapt them to take on board that feedback. Uh, and then also be heading somewhere in the future rather than just being for their own sake. The other thing we learnt, uh, particularly through COVID, is that these need to be projects that make better places for people and they have to not feel like roadworks because that's a number one way to, um, I guess, kill the vibrancy on a street is to deliver what feels like roadworks um, and will be very, very unappetising to your business community. So as well as um, these five work streams, we've recently just introduced a new pilot fund where we are providing 90% funding for uh, tactical urbanism projects across the country. So we've had round one so far and we've had 40 of those projects funded from 27 different councils around the country and we've split them into six what we're calling clusters. So these are groups of kind of like-minded projects and this will be the basis for the kind of peer-to-peer -peer learning that we're hoping to see over the next year so that people who are doing a small scale town centre upgrade are learning from other people elsewhere in the country doing a small scale town centre upgrade grade. We're providing um, some tools and resources for the program, so we're just launching a handbook uh, probably early next week and what we call a canvas, which is kind of a project management tool. So this is just a little wee glimpse of what's coming with the handbook. It's based around three pillars of really understanding the purpose of what you're doing. Um, having a way to embed learning in the project and ensuring that it's um, going to be inviting broad participation as well. And then this is just a quick look at our draft canvas. I actually think there's a new version since then. And this is to uh, kickstart people really thinking in a non-business as usual project planning way to capture some of the nuances of these projects. We also hope that this will be a tool that um, projects can actually use to co-design with their broader community. Um, and that this canvas will be something that that broader group comes back to over and over again and gets updated as the projects go along. So right now we are in a 12-month learning phase. We've got a, a huge number of projects where we're going to get a wealth of knowledge and understanding coming through based on our New Zealand context. Um, we've done up till now some work to try and align our system at a national level so that those councils don't start hitting immediate roadblocks that we've kind of learned a bit about. But this isn't our kind of go big moment. This is really an opportunity for us to hone our skills um, and deepen our understanding, build kind of sector capability, including with the industry. And then going forward is where we would expect to start to see that uh, able to scale up. So that's it for me and I'll pass back over to Ekaterina. Thanks so much, Claire. Uh, and I will give control to Sarah now. Sarah, over to you. Thank you. <clears throat> Making sure I'm up. Is that is that showing correctly? Oh, sorry. That's uh, it is correctly. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, hi, my name is Sarah Stace. I'm the Associate Director for Walking and Cycling Strategy at Transport for New South Wales. And I'm also the New South Wales Government Representative and Chair of Cycling Walking Australia New Zealand. Uh, before I get in, I will 
I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we all meet variously in Australia and New Zealand at the moment. I'm currently on the Kamaragal, land of the Kamaragal people of the Uyora Nation and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Um, I'll keep my presentation fairly short because we are um, really keen to um, hear from the audience and answer questions. Um, what I'm going to talk about is the, um, some of the tactical urbanism learnings that we've um, very rapidly been going through in New South Wales. Um, I guess often tactical urbanism gets referred to as pots and paint. I'd say it's, um, it's actually more sort of pots, paint and participation. It's really about, um, as both Claire and Mike have said, it's about getting the, um, the community to see and test uh, in, in, in a real life uh, example of what we're talking about when we're proposing changes. Often it can be quite hard for people to understand from looking at a map, or they may not be aware that a project's coming forward. Um, tactical urbanism and various forms of that can be a really great way for people to just see what, what this is about and test it out and give feedback. So that's, um, uh, and I guess what we have been doing in New South Wales, either with councils or with the state government, is I guess the sanctioned approach to tactical urbanism. So Mike showed in one of his diagrams that you might have a, um, a community-led project that might be for one or two days or a week or something like that. Um, but as you move, as a demonstration project, as you move into a pilot, uh, interim or long-term project, you, you take more of a sanctioned approach. And so the projects I'll be talking about today are that, that government sanctioned approach. Um, I've got a couple of examples here of local councils. Um, these, are, these are both in Sydney. The one on the left-hand side was, I guess, almost a, um, uh, I can't speak on behalf of Randwick Council, but almost was like a, an accidental tactical urbanism approach. That is at Clovelly Beach, which was closed during uh, the COVID lockdown. Um, and they closed the car park as well to prevent people from driving to the beach um, and then finding they couldn't um, use the beach. But what turned out was that the locals started flooding that with children on their bikes. So kids were on there on bikes and scooters and skateboards and they absolutely loved it. So when the um, people even had birthday parties down there, so they'd go down and chalk, you know, happy birthday Moxie and then another child would come along and add a bit more chalk and then eventually that child would turn up and, and see the birthday messages. It was, it was incredible how the community embraced that as a public space. Um, and after the car park reopened post lockdown, the community asked for that to be extended. So it's now a winter pedal park um, until the end of August. So I think that's a really lovely example of almost like a, an accidental tactical urbanism. Uh, on the right-hand side is Bronte Cutting near, it, it's between two beaches. It's a very popular walk um, that has thousands of people a day. Uh, the council is testing putting in a footpath where they've taken out some parking and it's, it's currently used as a footpath. It was put up for about three months initially and two years later, it's still there. Um, but that the, the council specifically invited feedback from the public about using that space. So there's some kind of, I guess, um, examples of, a, um, of councils taking this approach. When COVID happened, the New South Wales government responded very quickly. Um, on the 23rd of March, the uh, Minister for Transport and Roads came out with a post on Twitter and LinkedIn, et cetera, saying we've um, immediately responded by making the pedestrian crossing buttons automated. You don't need to press the button with your hand. Um, 
uh, you'll, you'll be given a pedestrian signal. This was in the CBD. Uh, and then it was very rapidly expanded out to include health districts uh, around hospitals and health campuses. And then we came back later with the little sleeves to actually cover the button. Um, on the right-hand side was a, a, um, in, outside of Centrelink in Fairfield. We found that people were um, having to queue to access that Centrelink um, and there wasn't enough space for people to pass on the footpath. And so we came through and put up water barriers so we could have a wider space. So that was within the first month or so of our um, immediate response to COVID. Um, then within about six weeks, I think um, DPI, that's our Department of Planning, Industry and Environment came out with a funding program, very closely associated or um, based on the example that Claire gave of um, uh, giving councils funding to undertake sort of, I guess, tactical projects. Um, in this case, it was um, uh, the portal is, has just closed and we're evaluating those projects and we should be coming out with responses soon. But essentially it's a, a $15 million program for councils to roll out projects that come in under $100,000 that they can rapidly roll out within three months or uh, under a million dollars for pilot projects that can be rolled out within 12 months. So if, if you're interested in that, that website link has got um, three webinars on there, a whole lot of case studies and guidelines. Um, and this particular project, it's, it's coming out from, um, from the planning department, but it involved a lot of very close interaction with Transport for New South Wales, because essentially um, uh, the, the use of road space is public space, but it also requires the approval of the roads authority to make cha changes to those road space. So we've been working really closely with um, our colleagues over in, in planning to make sure that we're able to enact those as quickly as possible. The um, next phase that we came out with was to um, create a whole lot of pop-up transport responses to COVID. So um, the link to any information around that is on the bottom left-hand corner. And I think that's you can click the link in the slides att attachment as well. Um, but that shows you, because it's a, this is basically a dynamic website, as we roll out more and more responses, um, we're putting that on the website so anyone can access that. Um, so we've got seven and a half kilometres of pop-up cycleways that are either under construction or already opened provide direct access into the Sydney CBD. And we're about to come out with further announcements to um, surrounding areas beyond that. And we've also brought in speed zone reductions. So um, Manly and Liverpool have both got 30 kilometre an hour precinct trials underway. We've put in 40 kilometre an hour precincts in the inner city near universities and hospital precincts. And we've also put 40 kilometre an hour speed limits along those pop-up cycleway routes. Uh, and that's that's our first pop-up cycleway there. That's on Sydney Park Road in Alexandria. You can see that um, it's it's wide. It's comfortable for a really wide range of users. We've had uh, really positive responses from the public um, saying that as uh, with children or even people with disabilities, et cetera, using it feel really comfortable. Um, and that's really what we're aiming for, something that appeals to a broad cross-section of the community but also providing uh, transport options for people to get into work or to get to key destinations. So I'll end on this slide, which is really talking about what has been the benefit for, um, for transport as a, as a transport or road agency and also for local governments around taking this approach. 
Um, of course, the, the important part is that we're prototyping and testing ideas with, with the community or with our customers. Um, but the other part that's been really surprising uh, for us has been how it has uh, almost forced us to, to test completely new ways of working internally. So we've been pushing processes that might have taken four years into a two month period. Um, and that has required um, a lot of cooperation. At times, um, uh, it's created a bit of conflict internally, but that's also meant we've tried completely different approaches to how we uh, do our design processes, approval processes, planning processes, working with the community, working with councils. Um, and we've created a whole lot of agile cross-functional working groups to do that. We've tested new procedures and processes. And hopefully out of this, we'll, we will um, rethink some of the processes that we do longer term um, to, to reflect a more agile way of working. Um, specifically in response to create, uh, COVID, we've created some limited duration testing of new procedures. So we've put in like a, a six month or a 12 month temporary approvals process. Um, so for example, we've created a, um, traffic committees, which is quite unusual to New South Wales. We've created a, a delegated approval for local governments to undertake emergency walking and cycling infrastructure. And we have a planning approval exemption for pop-up infrastructure for a, a, a limited period of time. So I guess that's been a learning for us that, that was, as I said, a bit of a surprise, but in fact has had some really great benefits for us as a, as a transport agency and um, for local governments as well. I think that is the end of my slideshow, Katarina, if you want to take that back. Yep. Uh, thank you so much, Sarah. I'm going to take that back. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks so much, Mike and Claire. Um, really, really interesting presentations. Um, and we have 30 minutes for our Q&A. So I welcome you to share your web cameras so our audience can see you. I can see Mike, yep, Sarah, and Claire. Welcome back, great, thanks. Um, we have many questions and I will start with the questions that all of you um, could answer and it would be great to hear your um, perspective. Um, so the very first one is a two-part question. So how do you see the application of uh, tactical urbanism in large, densely populated cities where space is a constraint? Uh, that was the first part. And the second one, so during this COVID-19 period, many countries have taken, um, oh, sorry, just lost the question. So have taken up tactical urbanism as a long-term change to, uh, to the road infrastructure and consumer behavior. So post COVID-19, what are your views of uh, private transport going back to normal? Will there be a decrease in the private car usage? So we can start with Mike and then just uh, move to Sarah and Claire. I mean, I'm gonna answer the second one first. I guess it's customary. Um, yeah, we don't know. We don't know what's coming in the next, at least in the United States, what's coming in six hours or six days or six weeks or six months, unfortunately. Um, you know, we've definitely seen a huge drop in uh, public transport patronage um, here in New York City um, and, and around the country. And that's a huge concern. Um, the traffic has ticked back up. It's not over pre-COVID levels, but it's getting much closer. 
Um, I would not be surprised if we get very close to it, although we may not see the growth that was projected for 2040 uh, materialize at this point. I think we're really trying to suss out what is the behavior around work. Um, people's travel behaviors will be impacted for quite some time. And of course, what is the confidence level that people can um, can have once they you know, feel like it's safe going back into public transport. Um, and you know, I think what's interesting is that at least in the New York City experience and in other cities like Boston and, and Seattle and other places, like transport's really, really crunched at peak hour. It's very, very packed and uncomfortable. And what we're building a muscle for, I think, is for people to think about the bicycle, the scooter, the walk as a way to some of their trips to replace the public transport trips. Um, so we'll see if that plays out. We don't know. Um, and then I think for the question about you know, having only so much space in um, urban centers, like exactly, we only have so much space. So we have to be using it much more efficiently and we're using it very, very poorly historically in our city centers and surrounding neighborhoods and districts. And so if we don't use this moment to rethink that and put in the type of cycle infrastructure that you're seeing from Sarah in Sydney or in Auckland, um, producing better pedestrian paths and safer places to walk around, then we're going to totally squander this learning moment of, hey, we've been doing it wrong, our house has been on fire for 60 years, and now is the time to rethink that and put a better system in place. And I think the biggest outcome of that is even less about the space, because the space is there, we can take it when there's will. It's about the procedures and policies that have been such a barrier for so long. Um, that's what we're seeing, starting to see change and crumble and programmatically from the entire country of New Zealand through NZPA, to New South Wales, you know, across many cities across the globe, they're putting these programs and policies in place to um, take that agile approach and really learn from it. And I think that's the most exciting and tangible thing for me right now is, is the infrastructure comes, but it's really the backbone of that is the policy. Thank you, Mike. Um, Sarah, what do you think? Uh, yes, I, I'd, I'd agree with, with Mike's summary. I guess um, with, with COVID, obviously, it's it's a it's a watch and wait. We we um, are seeing a very different outcome in New Zealand compared to uh, the US, obviously, and then maybe Australia somewhere lukewarm in between. We don't know. Um, what we're trying to do is to be prepared and to be agile um, and to try and learn from these processes. So as we go through these various iterative processes of um, installing up pop-pop cycleways or trying out uh, reduced speed, street speeds, um, working with councils, et cetera. We just keep coming back to what have we learned from this? What can we adopt in the future um, as, an, as an iterative process? That, that's the opportunity. We just don't know what's going to come out in the, in the longer term from this. Um, uh, I think we're, we're definitely seeing a shift towards, you know, the, when, you, when you talk to the bike industry about what's happening there, um, we're seeing a huge number of new jobs created out of the bike sales and um, uh, repair market. So there's, there's probably, uh, I'm, I'm going to take a guess, there's probably three or 400 jobs advertised right now for bike mechanics and bike sales. Um, one company said that they've created 200 new jobs in the last, the, the last three and a half months because the demand for bike repairs is so high. Um, and we've basically sold out of bikes in Australia and are just trying to get more and more. So what will be the long-term effects of this, we, we don't know, but there seems to be um, a 
a groundswell at the moment. And I guess our job is to enable people to take those options um, safely and conveniently. Uh, over to Claire. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, I, I um, when Mike sort of said exactly, that's what I was thinking about in terms of you know what happens when we do this in dense urban environments. That is exactly the point. So tactical urbanism is not introducing a new vision or a different kind of why or a new purpose. All of that is already established in our strategies, and I think. Um, that exact reason of density and wanting to use space more efficiently and the fact that we've allocated our streets really in a way that isn't set up to meet the objectives that we're after in our towns and cities and tactical urbanism isn't coming in to really change any of that it's coming in more as the how rather than the why so we've known why for a really long time what we've struggled with is the how to actually do it and so this is more a tool to help us um, actually make some progress doing those things that we know we should be doing I think um, one of the ways of thinking about it that I think is quite useful is that loss aversion theory. So people don't like to lose things and they don't like to lose things more than they like to gain things. And so tactical urbanism really helps when we're having conversations about losing parking or losing a traffic lane. We reduce the the fears around that by um, using tests and pilots where um, it's not as threatening. And then if we can have them in long enough so that people can have a real experience of them and start to see all the positive things and we're hearing those broad voices who actually really benefit, you know, from an equity perspective, people who can now use streets who couldn't use streets, then we get a new aversion to losing that and then that's kind of game changing because now people are saying please don't take that thing out we want to make it permanent um, so I think there's a really um, important contribution it can make um, but to, to get that benefit we have to not rip it out in the first week when we hear the initial reaction and we have to be really clear about what our measures of success were um, and and wait till it really demonstrates whether it met them. So um, yeah, in terms of the COVID, I, I think it is, it's a really different perspective from down in New Zealand. Our, our experience was that um, we were kind of gearing up as quickly as we could and then, you know, we moved back to a, a back to normal much quicker than other countries. And that really did mean that suddenly the conversation about transformation of streets disappeared very quickly. Um, so I think the lasting thought that we've had is we need to really work hard to get those strategies and networks identified and do all that pre-work so that if we're in that state again, we can mobilise um, much quicker. Thank you, Claire. Um, so we, we talked about the places created in larger communities by the closure of streets um, and where it is attractive for many reasons. And one of those is the presence of other people. Uh, but what thoughts or comments do you have for smaller towns who might wish to close streets but have much smaller populations and will likely end up with a deserted looking place? For example, main streets in towns with less than 10,000 or 5,000 people, how do you create a sense of place with so few people being drawn to that place, even with a successful outcome? I'll dive in because I'm, a, I'm from a town of 2,000 people in, in rural Maine. Um, you know, I love small towns. I love working in small towns and cities because it's so much easier to do this work. You need the, the ear 
of you know one or two people, perhaps the mayor, or you get to know the police chief, and then you're kind of golden. Um, you know, I, I think the, the the point is well taken that you know we're not talking about building 30 kilometers of new bikeways in a town of, of you know 3,000 people, but we have to scale the intervention to the context. You know, so in a in a high street of three blocks, taking two or three parking spaces for cafe space for businesses that are struggling can be a total game changer. And it can become the exciting thing that draws people back down to that environment, um, particularly at a time when people might have a little bit of mistrust about being out in, in public, at least you know, in, in many contexts. New Zealand might be you know, beyond that to a degree, but um, it's, it's really important to think about you know, the little things in a little context uh, make a big difference and, and not losing sight of that and not putting the pressure on yourself to think that you have to close the entire street, you know, and put out some intervention that is, is grand in scale. You, you just don't. In fact, if you do the small thing first, you might ultimately decide you can get to that point later and let the process, you know, un unveil itself and, and you'll see where, where things go. Um, and I'll just make the final point that I think the smallest community I've seen close their high street is in California, and it's a community of 18 people. I'll leave it at that. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Sarah, Claire? Uh, yes, um, I guess um, I can think of an example of a council in New South Wales, Port Macquarie Hastings Council, uh, I think back in 2016, won the Place Leaders Asia Pacific Award uh, for work that it did in a whole lot of towns. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, it might have been sort of 10 or 15 um, small towns in regional New South Wales where they brought this sort of placemaking approach um, and worked with their councillors to really understand placemaking through this sort of tactical uh, approach and through through um, doing small scale projects in their town. So it's scalable. You know, that's, that's um, uh, of course you want your communities to be able to try what it's like to have a great street space. It doesn't require a massive, you know, thousands of people to be there. Um, it, what it requires is uh, an interest in placemaking outcomes and, and uh, all those other objectives. I don't think it's necessarily a scale issue. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Sarah. Claire? Yeah, I think one of the things um, I've kind of learnt along the way is one of the key ways to do that is making sure that you're bringing in those skills and expertise that are specialists in placemaking. Um, and that's often a discipline that where transport's not always working closely with. And I think there is actually a, a, it's not quite urban design, it's something else again. And so having people who are really um, designed to think about activation of space um, and that it doesn't all, you know, in some areas, depending how long you're going to have something in for, you might really need a program of activation to go alongside it to give it that extra level of vibrancy. Um, something that we're encouraging, we've got quite a few small towns as part of Innovating Streets and we're really interested to find out some of the um, how that's going to work. But one of the things we're really encouraging our small towns to do is get crystal clear on that intervention logic. So why, why, why are you doing this? Is it about making it easier to cross the street? Is it about slowing the speed and giving, you know, a sense of safety? Or is it about creating more space for people and then um, making sure that your intervention is designed in a way that is really set up to deliver that why that you identified? And if it's about space for people um, and vibrancy, making sure your intervention is set up to 
provide vibrancy. So we've had a few projects that are sort of suggesting they shut whole streets down to add vibrancy, but it was pretty clear that it wasn't going to be vibrant. It was going to feel really dead um, without kind of a lot of that activation and placemaking going into it. So I think it definitely needs to be quite um, closely considered at the beginning what you're going to actually do. Right. Okay, thanks, Claire. Um, so our next question is about building community trust um, and early engagement. So obviously it is very important and Claire has already touched on uh, change and how difficult it might be to implement. So our participants are asking, do you have any good tips on how um, community and business engagement could be approached so you know we could win those communities and especially in today's environment where we are in lockdown and cannot meet in person so what do you think mike we'll start with you it's a tough one i mean the the lack of face-to-face -face contact right now is difficult and i'll give you a very quick anecdote um, we're involved with a, a high street upgrade in a, a very vibrant college town in Massachusetts. And um, the whole plan was to do a lot of focus group engagement, a lot of on the ground engagement with business owners because the whole long term picture of this project is a complete reconstruction of the street in 2025 or 2026. And all of our activities that we had planned for, for May and June got scuttled because of the pandemic. And so um, you know, the, there's a whole other backstory, like the, you know, the community engagement side of this, but the result is that we're still moving forward with the project because of there's a huge infusion of state funding that has basically increased our budget by 12x to do an even bigger and more, you know, permanent change on the street. Um, but we haven't been able to have those confidence building meetings in the same manner that we had, that we had planned. And so, What's really going to be important about this project is the messaging and being able to talk about, to Claire's point, the crystal clear reason why we're doing it, having very clear metrics, and then, you know, being able to change things when it's not meeting those goals and being very honest about that. And that's the only way to build that trust. Um, and so I think if you can think about those principles going into it, and then, you know, if you are able to be able to back some of your positions or your goals with available data and information to point to it at least creates a foundation or reasoning for the project itself and those principles um, and, and the goals of what you're trying to achieve now you're always going to have naysayers no matter what and you have to remember that the pilot is the process right you're trying this out to ferret out what the real issues and concerns are and you'll find that some people who are very against a project will very quickly turn in day one or three based on what they see in real time and then some people will still be upset about the project for uh, you know various reasons and then you'll have a huge silent majority that becomes more vocal and they're going to want it to stay if it's a success it's working well so um, those are kind of the realities of, of the engagement that we've learned through business groups and, and kind of high street environments and those dynamics thanks mike um sarah sarah uh yeah quickly i guess the um Obviously, it depends on the context, um, and yes, there's sort of issues with social distancing. I think there are also now a lot of online options to engage with communities for you know on a whole range of different scales of projects, and depending on what you're trying to achieve. So, with the um, that Streets of Shared Spaces program that I showed the link for earlier, um, as part of that uh, website, when you go to um, 
when councils were logging on to try and find about what, what how they would apply for funding, it also had um, a sort of a social pinpoint um, option. So members of the community could actually drop on into that on a map format uh, or in a survey format and give that what they think um, are the key issues in their local neighbourhood. Um, and you can also pick up things like sentiment surveys. There's, there's a number of universities and other locations that are actually just tracking people's sentiment um, either broadly in response to COVID or specifically in response to projects. Um, you can collect physical counters. You can be putting out, you know, other tube counts or, or infrared counters, et cetera, just to catch, catch footfall or number of bike riders. Um, and then there are other sort of some pretty amazing tools that you can pick out, like um, Neighbourlytics is an Australian startup that does a um, kind of a sentiment survey out of social media, not where people are specifically asked to respond to a project, but what, is, what are they what are they snapshotting? Are they are they walking their dogs or are they taking photos of scenery? Those sorts of things. So but there are a lot of online options out there to, to gather. It's, it's just coming back to, as, as Mike and I think Claire have said before, what are you trying to find the information about? What, what are your success factors you're trying to measure? And then collect those. Thank you, Sarah. Claire? Yeah, I think this could have an entire webinar all on its own. Um, but, you know, there is these sort of strategic approaches and there's tactics. And I think um, we're trying to learn about both. And at the strategic level, really getting better at how we're articulating change. So with um, the work we did, I showed you that research, how to talk about urban mobility, really recommend reading that. It talks about things like really focusing on your vision and your why and making sure that your opening communications are very vision focused um, rather than often what we do in transport is we default to the ingredients. So, you know, it's talking about the cake, not the ingredients and, and um, before we get into a process. And that includes things like using renders too early, you know, when you show a community a picture of something that you're saying you're going to come early to talk about what they want and you've already taken to them a, a design, it kind of is already undermining trust that you're going in with a kind of collaborative mindset. So I think, I mean, there's a huge amount of training in this space, I think, um, but things around also demonstrating the mandate for change. So these projects don't come out of nowhere. They're usually within strategic plans that have been built off long-term plans where communities have had a say about what they want their town or city to be. So making sure that we're really strategically using that mandate we've got from the community saying this is about delivering you and now making progress on the things that you said you told us that you wanted um, and getting really disciplined with that language. I think the other thing is I saw an article the other day that talked about how co-design is being really abused as a term and I think we maybe um, sometimes we're just replacing consult with co-design as if um, it's kind of a new lingo but effectively the same sort of process and I think what tactical urbanism offers is quite a fundamentally different way of engaging um, and like Mike said the pilot or the trial actually is the form of consultation and there is some trickiness around that because while it sounds good in theory um, down here in New Zealand we have things called traffic resolutions which are legal 
legally have legal implications about public consultation. So there's actually some grey area as to whether we can use these trials as consultation. We think that it's okay, but it's sort of up to different legal advice. Um, but if you know if, if that's how we start to approach it, which is that the pilot is the consultation, and we take the burden off consulting in our you know usual very long formal process before we even get the pilot in and you know we can assure people that we'll be taking your feedback while it's in then we can start to get those gains of giving people a real life experience of it to reference for their feedback so I could go on and on and on but I think there are some other tactical things as well so once we've come up with kind of the initial project press release we can often go silent for a really long time and I think having quite a machine of content creation where we're finding positive stories on a kind of daily basis to share so that the news feed um, that our journalists are getting aren't just the the noisy opposition voices but they're all these kind of positive um, supportive voices as well that we can often neglect when we're busy planning the project so I think there's yeah lots and lots <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Thanks so much, Claire. Uh, well, we talked about uh, community engagement, um, and this question um, is about how to. Do you have any advice on how to work with local councils, um, and what steps could be taken to overcome bureaucratic processes and uh, implement projects quickly, and where the initiative should be coming from? From your experience, maybe. I mean, it's here's the maddening thing about tactical urbanism is that the regulations are just a little bit different in every single community that we've worked in. And mm -hmm. so it's very hard to develop a playbook or a response to those rules and regulations that are different, at least in the US context, from you know, state to state, town to town, uh, DOT to DPW to D, you know, all these different agencies that are involved have their different little Piccadillos that you have to get through. And so we're constantly having to manage that. And that is probably one of the biggest challenges to replicating the work, which is why we move more towards, you know, less of, you know, we still obviously do one off projects, but we are trying to embed these programmatic elements that give the space and time to figure out those problems, you know, mm -hmm. so that they're no longer a problem moving forward. So once street plans is long gone, any next consultant community group practitioner at the council can actually move forward with doing this work um, in a way that's just normalized. And, and that's a really big hurdle and it takes you know, years of, of work. And I think you know, Claire and, and Sarah are really onto something in the work that they're doing and will of course come across barriers to it. Um, but it is the, it's the essential work. That's the important work to be doing right now to be able to, to just systematically get over some of those barriers. Um, otherwise, you're gonna be, uh, you know, whack-a-mole, you know, slapping flies, whatever the analogy would be, time and time again, so you can get into the root cause of some of these, these frustrations. Thanks, Mike. Sarah, Claire? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've, we're doing a lot of learning by doing um, at the moment, but um, we've, particularly for those um, first uh, round of pop-up cycleways that I've shown some photos of today um, are all within the City of Sydney area. So um, Transport's been working very closely with the city to do those projects. And as we roll out the next phases beyond, we're working with, with councils beyond that area. Um, and I guess the, that 
each council, as, as Mike said, each location is different, but each council is also different as well. Some councils are very well resourced, have a lot of experience in this area. Um, uh, other councils have been working in kind of tactical urbanism space or pilots and demonstrations for many, many years and have a lot more experience than, than we at state government do. Um, and other councils have got no experience at all in this and they this is a, a totally new grounds that they're, they're, they're working in. So I think it really is, is dependent on the, the location. Um, again, with that Streets of Shared Spaces program that I showed, um, we've tried as much as possible to prepare ahead um, the types of questions that will be coming out of councils um, with a whole series of frequently asked questions, et cetera. And we've created all of the sort of enabling policies and protocols to allow that to happen. But I'm sure there's there's a lot more for us to go on that one, uh, Claire. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on the last bit of that question about where do the projects come from um, and that was an interesting learning experience for us when we started evaluating the applications that were coming in from councils and there were sort of two camps. One was that this is a plan that's been in the, the town strategy um, for a while and it's a council priority and then there was the this is something our community really wants to do locally there's not a, necessarily a direct line of sight to a strategy but there's a real local buy-in and what we found is we think the sweet spot uh, is where there's both um, so in terms of where the projects come from if you can find a project that has a strategic future ahead of it so it's actually piloting something that you plan to invest in and that has a really enthused local community who can't wait for it um, then you're probably picking a winner in terms of um, you know giving yourself a, a leg up. Thanks Claire. Uh, look guys this is such an interesting topic and we have many questions. Um, I will ask one last question uh, before before we finish this session. So is there any methodology to quantify the benefits of projects implemented um, under tactical urbanism or any project prioritization method? Yeah, I mean, I think all the, we've discussed some of them this evening. Um, it really does depend on what your goals are and then trying to figure out what the best tools are available to do that evaluation and, and, and measurement. Um, some places it's safety, some places it's the number of people who are sitting in a single place, some places it's more environmental performance, some places it's retail sales, sometimes it's you know all of the above. And so I think it's really, again, getting clear to, to Claire's point about why are we doing this and what are our goals and make sure that you're, uh, you know, measuring what matters to you as a community. And then, you know, again, the, the tools are, are myriad out there. So you can find, you know, lots of different ways to do this, if you, have, you know, both analog and digital um, to collect that information. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Sarah, what are your thoughts? Uh, I don't think I have any, any further to add. I think, think Mike's uh, response is pretty, pretty good on that one. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Claire, would you like to say something? Uh, yeah, I think we, we're looking to monitor not just at the project level, so we're hoping that each of these projects have got a, a monitoring, and we're not hoping, we're working with them to make sure they have a monitoring and evaluation plan, um, but we're also looking to monitor um, kind of the the outcomes at a program level. So are we seeing a lift in capability across the country? Have we got, is the industry um, upskilled in using this? Are we delivering projects ahead of when they would have otherwise be delivered? Are they across the board delivering benefits again in advance of when they would have been? So um, we'll, be we'll be stacking the, the case up for it over the next year as well. 
Uh, thank you, Claire. Uh, well, guys, it is 1.31 and um, I, I would like to continue this fascinating discussion um, and we still have questions, but unfortunately we have to finish. So I'm just going to share my um, camera as well. Um, I will just say a few words um, about our upcoming webinars in July and August before before we um, wrap up the session. Um, so I would like to draw your attention to the session on the 13th of August. Uh, we will talk about the best practice approaches of classifying, valuing, and measuring the place function of roads, streets, and surrounding land use. Make sure to register. And additionally, you may be interested to know that tomorrow at 10 a.m. Uh, Australian Eastern Standard Time, Place Leaders Asia Pacific will run a webinar, Streets as Contested Spaces, Implications for Place Governance. So check placeleaders.com um, for more information. Well, thanks so much, Mike, Sarah, and Claire, for such such an amazing webinar, such an interesting topic. Um, and I wish we had more time. Maybe in future we will we will have another session. But thanks so much. Um, we will uh, finish here. Uh, and before before we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up um, on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback. Um, let us know what you think. We we do read it all and. Um, We've been using your suggestions to shape our future webinar program and deliver relevant and practical sessions. So thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe um, and enjoy the rest of your day. And I'm saying goodbye to everyone. Um, hopefully to see, hopefully we'll see you um, next time. Thanks again and um, see you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.